So tonight, um, Karen and Sean and James are all going to talk a little bit about themselves. So I'm going to keep the introduction uh, mostly about the community itself. And uh, this is actually on their website, and they have a, a beautiful website. So for all of you who are interested, uh, you can uh, go there and learn a lot about the community. But I'll just tell you a little bit about Benincasa community. It is a lay community named for Catherine Benincasa de Siena, the theologian, mystic, reformer, and peacemaker. It's dedicated to the works of mercy and justice in an era thirsting for humanity's collective recognition of unity and interdependence with all creation. They are grounded by faith and emerging understanding of the new cosmology, the development of new economic models in our world, and the need for deepening relationships with the land and one another. They are a small, committed community guided by four pillars, contemplation, prayer, learning, study, works, direct aid, and right relationship community. They renovated and now reside in an old convent in Manhattan's Upper West Side. They are inspired by and connected to the Dominican Sisters of the Northeast, the Catholic Worker Movement, and the Thompson Street Jesuits. They are monastic in that they offer a peaceful place of refuge for guests and visitors while maintaining a daily rhythm of meals and prayer. They are apostolic in that they offer aid and seek to be in solidarity with their neighbors and all of creation. They are rooted in the Catholic tradition as demonstrated by women religious and radical lay movements Benincasa community consists of core members who have made long-term, full-time commitments to the community. Guests seeking a nourishing, safe place to live and Dominican volunteers engaging in a year of service. The whole of Benincasa community strives to cultivate and share bread and roses within their home, their city, and in the global community. So I just want to welcome tonight Karen and Sean and James as they tell a little, bit, a little bit about themselves and about the founding of their community. So take it away. Thank you, Deb, and thank you, Russ, for that beautiful uh, prayer that started us off. Um, my name is Sean, and I'm Karen, and I'm Jimmy. And first, we want to thank everybody joining us here on this call, um, from the folks that are here in this room to those of you sitting in your own rooms with us on speakerphone. We're so grateful to share some of our stories and our thoughts and hope this conversation is a little more fruitful than an auditorium lecture because the gift is at least you can have a snack while you're listening to us. <laughs> There's going to be three parts to this call and um, the first part I will begin with and we'll explore the question, why uh, do we ask the question about the future of religious life and what might it mean? Jimmy will give us a little bit of background of the example of Ben and Casa and how we particularly live it out in our own way. And then Karen will give us a short history of religious life and some lessons that we've learned through our study of that. And right before each of our sharings, individually we'll give a little background about ourselves and our own journeys. Um, to start us off, I really begin by thinking about the question of religious life because it interests me um, from a personal perspective because I think that we're always living in a time when people need religion. 
and ritual to make sense of the world around them. Uh, and for me individually, it was during the second Gulf War that I started thinking about really the response or non-response of faith leaders to the violence that we were inflicting on innocent people around the world. It seemed to me that there were many people of faith who were really in support of this violence because there was this wave of patriotism that swept across our homes and our communities and our country at that time. And I spent some time at that, at that moment in my life really wondering about the intersection of a gospel message that seemed to teach peace and resistance to state and individual violence with this blind support of it being executed on other people. It was a crisis of faith for me that led me on a journey to question some of the other assumptions of church leaders and imagine instead a real faith-led community, one that was based on a resistance to some of the sins of the church hierarchy and capitalism, and instead think about how I might work for a people's education of theology and a reigniting of our connection to the sacred through Mother Earth. I was educated for eight years in Jesuit schools, and I spent two and a half years myself as a postulant discerning a life with them. And at that time, I was also teaching and working in city schools in Seattle, and more recently in New York City. And throughout that process, you know, it ended that I didn't join the Jesuits, but I continued to desire community and desired an integrated faith life. We know that as the spirit works, as that door was closing, it coincided with the opening door of finding kindred spirits in the forming of Ben and Casa. That's enough about me, and I wanted to get back to the question because it's one that we've been asking for years, and it's one that gets asked a lot about the future of religious life. As I mentioned before, it's our hope during this call to explore some of those questions, share the examples of how we believe Ben and Casa community has demonstrated just one way of living a more inclusive religious life, and then provide an, a really brief metaphor illustrating the history of how religious life has changed since the time of Jesus. To me, it seems like there's something important about how religious life, religious life as we've known it has come to strike us and influence us and shape us and inspire us. It seems to me that all of us on this call and in this conversation are here because religious life has touched us in some way some manner, some shape, or form. Maybe it was through the vowed religious sisters we know or the retreats we've participated in or the vocations that we have individually discerned. And yet, we believe that the motivation this, for this question comes from a deep sense of needing to hold onto something from the past. In a very real and personal way, at Ben and Casa, we struggle every day with working out what parts of our Catholic tradition we're supposed to hold on to and what we need to really let go of is a never-ending process. There are inherently good desires and traditions to consider here, right? People living with common desires and environments in which people are not only allowed to, but encouraged to explore their faith lives deeply. These are good things. And yet, there are also things that are the generations of our parents and our grandparents could never fathom. They couldn't fathom the world that we live in today. So given these new perspectives and worldviews, our understandings of relationships and love and information, might it be possible for followers of Jesus to live out these desires in broader and more accessible ways? Can we move beyond building sets of in-crowds and out-crowds, that is, those who have committed to themselves to this life by publicly taking vows and those whose commitment 
is not equally recognized or valued because they've not taken those vows? We ask questions like, who is being included by future definitions of religious life? And how are we either supporting or resisting the maintenance of those understandings? We know that we all want to avoid perpetuating another form of religious clericalism, exclusivity and hierarchy, by compartmentalizing the lives of religious and lay. We ourselves often get asked, why don't you become a priest or a nun? As we've heard it, the question seems to imply there's a hierarchy of commitment. That is, well, if you love your faith so much, why don't you just go all the way? While the question regarding the viability of traditionally vowed religious life merits consideration, it does. The question we ask might not be about the future of religious life at all, that is about becoming nuns or priests, but rather about the future of how to live an ethical, faith-informed, contemplative, and action-oriented life based on integrity and justice, dedicated to being in right relationship with our whole earth community. We believe it's possible and even essential to be a bit more inclusive. We're looking for a question anyone can ask, a way of life anyone can live, one not based on a more perfect form of faith, but rather striving for the faith lives of all. We ask ourselves, are we still reading the signs of the time? as Catholics and women religious were called to do after Vatican II, then we truly say we're prepared to declare no more religious or lay, we're all one earth family. Certainly it's from these past traditions that Benincasa community has come to be here today. So it's not about forgetting the past, but really a reimagining of and a leaning into the future. In just a moment, Jimmy's gonna share the way Benincasa has come to wrestle with these questions and live out our commitments. It's our understanding and it's our belief and it's our hope that really we are just one of many communities presently living into this call of the Spirit. Thanks, Sean. Hi again, this is Jimmy on the call now. Uh, for this portion of the call, I am going to give a background about myself by sharing a story about my grandfather's. And after, I will give an overview of us, of Ben and Casa community. So to share about myself, I want to go back to my paternal grandfather, Grandpa Hannigan, who was a first-generation Irish-American. And like any good Irishman, he was known to exaggerate his stories. And one of his favorite topics to speak about was his youth in the hybrid section of the Bronx. He would often speak with a nostalgic excitement about his days in Highbridge, sharing tales of stickball games, of his father's adventures as a firefighter, and about his days at Cardinal Hayes High School. Fast forward, 65 years later, I was a senior in college and I committed to a year of service with the Dominican sisters and was ready to work in Atlanta when an unexpected shift placed me in the Bronx. I immediately looked up the location and was shocked to see that not only was I living in the Highbridge neighborhood, I was a mere block away from my Grandpa Hannigan's home parish and elementary school, Sacred Heart. Two months into the program, we had a few Dominican sisters over for dinner. One of the nuns said she had worked at Malloy College for years. My maternal Grandpa Doyle had been a professor there. I asked if she knew him, and she said, oh yes, Don, I knew him for years, such a lovely man. 
There I was, sitting in an apartment on the same block where one of my grandfathers had grown up and speaking with my other grandfather's longtime colleague. In some mysterious way, I felt deeply connected to both of my deceased grandfathers. It's in my blood. I am Irish American Catholic. It is my culture, my family, my religion. And it holds many contradictions, both prophetic work and wisdom, as well as exploitation and oppression. As a Catholic, I had both Dorothy Day and exclusive patriarchal leadership. As an American, I had both the anti-war movement and excessive militarism. And in my Irish heritage, I had both the spirit of gritty perseverance and a culture that whitewashed itself into complicity with white supremacy. And yet, after growing up and being formed by it all, I found myself at age 22 being drawn in by the prophetic tradition. I was yearning for more. I wanted to live in community. I wanted to pursue truly just work. And my faith was still in its infancy stage. Quite frankly, I never actively discerned the priesthood or religious life. First, because there was hardly anyone my age joining. Second, I had the intuition, really from when I was young, that forced celibacy and patriarchal power would not be a healthy lifestyle for me. And third, and this one is perhaps the most out of my control, I was most inspired by women religious, and there was no way for me to become a nun. The yearning was there, and gratefully, I was able to join Ben and Casa just as we opened our doors place where I am able to live in community, pursue just work, and grow in my faith in an inclusive and expansive environment. Okay, that's enough about me. Now I will share about Ben and Casa. As Deb said, we are a small Catholic community who renovated and now reside in an old convent in Manhattan's Upper West Side. We draw our name from Catherine Ben and Casa, who you probably know as St. Catherine of Siena, a laywoman, a theologian, mediator between popes, church reformer, and worker for the poor. The soil in which Benincasa has grown is rich in nutrients. The dear friends of our community, who are the example and inspiration we draw from, is threefold. The New York Catholic worker, the Dominican Sisters of the Northeast, and the 98th Street Jesuits led by Daniel Berrigan. Our lives seek the integration and balance of four pillars, or currents. I like to call them currents, as each has its own movement, and at the same time weaves into one another, just like the currents of a flowing river. The four currents that guide us are prayer, study, works, and community. And to give the story of Benincasa, I will take you through each of these currents. The first current, prayer. We seek both individually and communally to be guided by the Spirit. Typically, we come together in communal prayer five times a week after we eat dinner. Our prayer practice shifts with the liturgical seasons and with the interests and desires of our community. Over the past three years, we've done Vespers, Meditative Silence, faith sharing, worship and praise, 
and Lectio Divina with scripture and other theological readings. The second current, study. In study, we seek to grow our understanding of societal issues, of church history, and of our universe. We have a quarterly wisdom circle where we explore a church or theological teaching in two parts. The first part of the wisdom circle is a conference call with a scholar on the topic. And the second part is a meal and conversation with our friends, both Dominican sisters and lay folks. Our study also, incur, our study also occurs informally in our daily conversations around activism, intersectionality, and the church. The third current, work. Our work is centered on three programs, hospitality, lay formation, and earth justice. For hospitality, we created the Daniel Berrigan Center for Art and Activism, a retreat space within our home where we host activists, artists, and student groups. In addition, we set aside two rooms for those at risk of homelessness. We've found many people have their last safety net unexpectedly drop out and need to reground themselves. And this takes room and board and a loving community to be a part of. For Earth Justice, we have worked on numerous farms, and our yearning is to both physically work the earth, to have our hands in the soil, and also to deepen our understanding of the new cosmology and expand our concept of creation and God and bring others into a deepening relationship with the land. In our lay formation program, we seek to form truly inclusive Catholic spaces. Our Through Every Age, also known as T program, which will launch next September, seeks to provide a space for lay Catholics struggling to find nourishment, vitality, and inclusion in the structures of parish life and canonical organizations. Also related to lay empowerment, during the seasons of Lent and Advent, we take action to hold our beloved church accountable. Our past actions include creating an Advent calendar which featured real doors from real closed church properties, calling on the Archdiocese of New York to open its doors to the homeless and refugee. This past Lent, we recorded Nowhere We Stand podcast, which explores justice, identity, faith, and the lay Catholic consciousness. And last but certainly not least, the current of community. We currently have five people living in our community. Since our founding, we've had as many as 11 people and as few as four living with us. We found that around five to eight people is ideal for our community, small enough that everyone can be heard at a house meeting, large enough to share the work and have balanced energy in the house. We share meals and prayer together five nights a week. We have our care of house, also known as house cleaning chores, on Thursday nights. Financially, we share a common pot, which pays our rent, buys our food, and covers any needed repairs. As guided by Acts of the Apostles, we seek to practice equity in our financial model, each contributing according to their ability. And of course, many impactful moments in community are informal, celebrating birthdays, holding, other, holding one another in difficult times, hosting one another's families and friends, 
befriending our neighbors. Close just this part of the call. I want to share a story. Perhaps the greatest gift our community offers is a spirit-led synergy. We put forth the work, and the spirit takes it to a place beyond our expectations. The Coalition of Amokby Workers, known as the CIW for short, are a coalition of tomato farm workers from Florida organizing for fair wages and dignified treatment in the fields. This, this past February and March, they stayed in our Dan Berrigan Center while preparing for a week of mass action in New York. On the surface, our job was simple, provide a clean and loving place for the CIW to stay and work, and we also provide dinner. Over time, we began to build a relationship with the CIW as we learned more about their work and shared about ours. Eventually, the CIW said they were seeking ally fasteners for their week of action. We volunteered to fast with them. A pretty easy choice as it was already Lent. We mentioned we were doing a podcast. CIW offered to be interviewed. The CIW said they were looking to share their story. So Lupe, one of the farm workers, gave a reflection at our monthly prayer gathering. After Lupe shared, elders of ours who were dear friends of Dan Berrigan were moved to tears, saying they remembered when Dan marched with Cesar Chavez and how he would how happy he would be that the CIW was staying in a retreat center named after him. By the time the week of action arrived, not only was Ben and Casa fasting alongside the CIW, many of our family and friends came to march or fast in solidarity. We simply opened our doors to offer a place to sit, a place to stay, and then the spirit went to work. Relationships were built, we offered aid mutually to one another, and we all became interwoven in the struggle for farm worker liberation. The spirit's synergy grew beyond any of our initial expectations. At the heart of our community, it's simple. We seek to deepen our lives by living in alignment with the earth, by deepening our relationship with others, by engaging our minds, by working with those fighting for liberation, and of course, by becoming one in our relationship with God. That's it for my part of the call. I'll now toss it over to Karen. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, everybody on this call. We are very, very humbled that you would spend your evening with us. We know how busy folks are and it's just really exciting, and we're really, really grateful. Thank you. So uh, like Jimmy and Sean, I'm going to start with a little bit about myself, and then I'm going to roll into a little bit of the learnings that we've had about religious life through our study. So my primary identities are Catholic and Italian-American. I grew up celebrating the Feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel and feeling intimately close to the saints. I felt called by God at a very young age. I was an altar server, the first girl in my parish, in fact, and then a lector, and then I served on parish council. I went to Loyola University Chicago for college, and at that time, I knew that I was called to be a sister, 
back then I would have certainly used the word none. Um, but I knew it was, it was an experience, not just a, a logical decision. After I graduated from Loyola in 2003, I lived with three Dominican sisters as a Dominican volunteer in East Flatbush, Brooklyn. And during that time in my 20s, my friends and I, we were still on fire from vigiling at the School of the Americas and learning the truth about Mary Magdalene. And we were ready to live our lives as adult Catholics, ready to do our part, just like Dorothy and Peter in the 30s, Edith in the 40s, Dan and Philip and Liz in the 60s, and Ida, Mora, Dorothy, and Jean in the 70s. It felt like God had sent me a clear invitation, come on over and be mine. But when I knocked at the doors of religious institutions and went inside, God wasn't there for me. Over time, I came to realize that on that list of people, that 20th century saint list that I just named, some of those people were lay and some were religious, some were religious who left their orders, some were lay who lived like religious, and some were religious who lived like lay. Killed or imprisoned every last one of them, but their relationship to religious life was less than clear. I described this sense of being deeply called to religious life while at the same time unable to find the spirit in its current form to a sister at the Abbey Regina Laudis in Connecticut. And it was she, Mother Deborah Joseph, who said to me, you're meant to be a foundress. I didn't understand it or quite honestly want that pronouncement. But years later, it became clear to me. I went to law school. I was moved by the housing crisis that we faced and continue to face in New York City, and I became a housing attorney. I began volunteering as a Catholic worker and learned from them, and neither the volunteering or the learning has ceased since then. And when I learned that the Catholic Church was one of the largest landholders in Manhattan, and that so many of those spaces were vacant, a plan came into being. Another day, I will tell you about the search for a convent. Try being a lay woman asking the patriarchy to do something for the good of humanity. It's a no-go, as you can imagine. When Benton Casa opened in 2015, it seemed an imperative, almost an emergency to answer this question. What was the core, the essence of religious life? Through intensive study and dialogue, with too many people to thank on this call, Regina, Joanne, Margaret, Jamie, we have come to a few learnings, which we would like to share with you tonight. Okay, I hope you're ready for this. Stay with me here. It's going to get a little weird, okay? Number one, there is no such thing as traditional religious life. We all know that religious life did not emerge from the tomb as a fully formed concept, nor was religious life decreed, given by God to humanity, engraved on two stone tablets. Religious life, like all life, evolved little by little as people of faith reacted and adapted to social, political, economic, and ecclesiological forces of their day. I love how Cistercian Armand Velou describes monasticism. This is his quote. There appears at the end of the third century that vast movement, so multiform, so diverse, and so confusing in the variety of its manifestations which has been designated by a name that has always been ambiguous, monasticism. So 
let's on this call, let's conjure, I'll, I'll give you a list of, of some of the various movements of religious life that we know of. The early Christian communities who shared all things in common, ensured there was no needy among them, and professed resurrection. To the desert mothers and fathers of the third century who withdrew themselves from the urban centers. To St. Jerome, who was pulled back to Rome in the fifth century, infusing monastic life with a zeal for scholarship. To Francis and Dominic in the 13th centuries, a total rejection of monastic life. Forget it. And then the mystics like Teresa of Avila, who in the 16th century traveled into her own interior monastery. The apostolic orders of the 17, 18, and 1900s, who established institutions and service organizations. The folks we know, Elizabeth Ancy and Venerable Catherine Macaulay. To the very recent period of discarded habits and the universal call to holiness. For the sake of this conversation, I want to go to the dogs. Please don't be offended. Forgive me for insinuating that the Jesuits are like hypoallergenic labradoodles to St. Anthony of Egypt's mangy wolf. I will not even dare name the cockapoos of religious life. My only hope is that the words variety and evolution will become associated in your mind with religious life. So all throughout my historical talk, I'm going to be referencing dogs, and I hope it helps or that half of you didn't hang up already, but let's keep going. So I came across the following ponderings about dog breeds, and I think these questions are helpful. It's a helpful metaphor for us in thinking about the way that one form morphs into another. Okay, you can ponder this for the rest of the evening. Is the Australian stumpy-tailed cattle dog a separate breed or just a naturally bobtailed one? Is the American Eskimo dog a breed, or should it be grouped as a German spit? Who's to say? Who is the arbiter, the classifier, the stamper of approval for the ever-evolving multiplicitous forms of religious life? Who is the American Kennel Club of religious life? Why do I even ask these things? The Vatican, of course. In fact, one of the essential elements of religious life is that it ain't religious life if it's not recognized by the Vatican. And just to sort of hammer this point home about how religious life is so dependent, the term religious life is so dependent on the Vatican, here's the briefest of histories of the Vatican's efforts to name and control women religious. In 375, bishops began regulating, wait for it, true virgins. In 1298, with the mendicant orders taking off, Dominic and Francis have left the monastery. Boniface VIII imposed cloister on all women religious. In 1550, during the Counter-Reformation, the Council of Trent put the church on lockdown, reinforcing the 1298 cloister rule with excommunication. All women religious were cloistered from 1901, from 1298 to 1901 when Pope Leo XIII officially recognized non-cloistered women as true religious. And then finally, the last big shift in religious life for women, for men, occurs, occurs in the 60s with Vatican II. Okay, so to review point one, in the 2,000-year history, there have been many forms of religious life, but only one person, one entity, who can bestow the title of religious life. 
Okay, now this brings me to my, our second learning, my second point here. The title of religious life is almost always bestowed retroactively. The papal determination that a group of people are living, quote-unquote, religious life rarely aligns with the current moment in which the founders are living or the moment the community is most, most vibrant. The title of religious life catches up with the movement generations later when the movement is both too large to suppress and willing to submit to papal oversight. If a movement doesn't catch on, or it morphs too quickly into another form, or it never submits to Vatican oversight, it fades from our institutional memory. Again, let's go back to the American Kennel Club. There seems to be some wisdom in retrospectively naming an emergence. The AKC requires a breed to be active in the U.S. with sufficient numbers before it's registered, and for an organized breed club to seek recognition. For example, this is why, the Shibu Inu folks can't go more than a couple of years without splitting the breed club and declaring the other side an anathema over some trivial detail, right? It makes sense that the Vatican would see what emerges, see what endures before giving the canonical stamp of approval. But it simply isn't the big T truth that the only forms of prophetic gospel-centered life present among us are those currently recognized by the Vatican. Look around. If the communities or individuals you see living the gospel right now in this moment take root, endure, and seek Vatican approval in 60, 120, 500 years, it may be that 100,000 women and men were added to the ranks of vowed religious in 2017. Maybe you are a nun. If you're a nun in this moment, maybe you'll be deemed heretical in 75 years. Who knows? And two quick examples of this retroactive naming. I mentioned a moment ago that women religious were ordered to be under enclosure, i.e. cloistered, from 1298 to 1901. Yet, the Visitation Sisters, the Vincentians, the Daughters of Charity, the Mercies, the Sisters of St. Joseph, the Adorers of the Blood of Christ, were all founded during this time. And many women in the cloisters, Franciscans, Dominicans, they left to serve the poor. It took 300 years of service to the poor for them to be recognized as, quote, unquote, true religious. In 1901, Leo XIII finally said, I guess those women in habits, having a celibate lifestyle and praying all the time and doing the works of mercy really are religious. 300 years. Another more specific example is the life of Mary Ward. She was a poor Clare in London in the 1600s, but left the cloister to work underground, visiting prisoners and tending to the sick. She and her companions sought to establish a women's order on par with the men's order founded 50 years prior by a dude named Ignatius and his companions. The women wore ordinary clothes, would not enter the cloister, traveled through Europe founding schools and serving the poor, and were self-governing, i.e. total disregard for the Council of Trent. And for this, Mary was imprisoned as a heretic. Because it was Mary's dream to gain approval for her women's order, in 1703, 50 years after her death, the order she founded acquiesced, accepted a rule based on Ignatian spirituality with male oversight, and this really crazy stipulation, 
that the sisters could not acknowledge Mary Ward as their foundress. In the early 1900s, the sisters, who called themselves the Congregation of Jesus, were, like the rest, decreed to be, quote-unquote, true religious and allowed their own governance. Okay, so all of this, the diversity of forms, the arbitrary stamp of approval, the retroactive rewriting of history, it leads us to the conclusion that Ben and Casa communities should not concern ourselves with the title or the future of, quote-unquote, religious life. We now understand that the Vatican stamp of approval has little to do with the question, are we sharing all things in common, ensuring there are no needy among us in professing resurrection? It's liberating to finally reach this conclusion, especially as people who felt that they didn't quite fit into religious life. And yet, while it's good to name and internalize that the status or label of religious life is not a decisive indicator of whether you are doing God's work, it also seems important to not simply shrug our shoulders, throw up our hands, and say, well, some of us will be deemed religious and some of us won't. No use sweating the details. We, Sean, Jimmy, and I are mutually bound to a group of Dominican sisters. And we, for the present moment sisters and the present moment lay, have an interest, perhaps even an obligation, to keep the Vatican-approved religious life moving forward or at least make sure things are on the up and up. For these reasons, I'd like to take note of two instances where we feel the current form of Vatican-proved religious life is at odds with the spirit. Stay with me, folks, a little bit more. <laughs> the first is the concept of perfection. Canon law still speaks about the evangelical councils as the perfection of our state, and celibacy as perfect self-restraint and consecrated people as living perfect charity. Having lived with and walked with canonically vowed women and men religious, we can tell you there are real consequences for people seeking perfection. And real consequences when the laity believe the canonically vowed are perfect. The hierarchy of sanctity is dangerous. Thankfully, we're coming to understand this and coming to know that we're interdependent, that diversity is a blessing and a necessity for life, and that all life is sacred. It seems, thankfully, that we're saying goodbye to perfection. And I just want to bring it back to the dogs once again. It's common knowledge when we talk about dogs that the pursuit of perfection is dangerous. We've all seen a beautiful purebred German shepherd whose hips don't work because they've been bred for perfection. In the pursuit of the perfectly cute, we made French bulldogs. And my God, they are so cute. But their cute round heads are too big for the birth canal, and their puppies can only be delivered by C-section. Right? We can't make perfect. It's sinful to try. The second place we see the current form of Vatican-approved religious life at odds with the spirit is in the term in the realm of separateness. It seems that the divisions, the clubs of religious life, aren't life-giving anymore. Dominican, Good Shepherd, Mercy, and the micro-divisions of these orders into regions may be contributing to the death of religious life in its current form. When I think back to that list of 20th century saints, Peter Morin, Eda Ford, and that list of religious throughout church history, Elizabeth Ann Seton, Teresa of Avila, 
I don't think it matters that they're Carmelite or Marinol. I see archetypes. The scholar, the rebel, the explorer, the creative, the hermit, the sage, the hero. If you don't like these words, try the Enneagram. Pope John Paul XXIII is totally a number two. Whatever. But exploring and identifying God's call through a type framework rather than religious orders takes the power away from the Vatican and recognizes the universal call to holiness of married people, widowed people, single people, celibate people as we live together in committed communities. One last dog reference before I go. The AKC names seven types of breeds, sporting, hounds, working, terriers, toy, non-sporting, and herding. Within these archetypes, there's a shared proclivity for a certain mode of being, a certain kind of work. And Ben and Casa, our funky mixed breed hound, Dominic, cannot keep his paws out of water. If there's a pond or even a puddle in sight, he will strain himself, using all of his energy and then finally all of his breath in full howl to the creator until his paws are submerged in water. I am in awe of his desire, his need to be in water. It helps me think differently about God's plan for each of us. We were built by God to be or do or say or represent something particular in our time. Perhaps it's simply the work of Ben and Casa, our unique role to challenge the notion that religious life can or should be contained within a canonical status. Thank you for listening, and here's Sean for some wrap-up. Just about done. Thank you for everybody holding on. Uh, it's really these past models of religious life and the models being offered by the church today that were right for those times and there's for those people. But for centuries, by living with integrity and following these gospel mandates to love and pursue justice, it was vowed religious that provided an anchoring authenticity of faith within a church that was otherwise prone to pursuing their own unmitigated power and untempered political influence. But in the 21st century, it's a period in which people and movements across Earth are breaking free from the shackles of these theologies developed by Western civilization. So it's no longer necessary or convenient or helpful to maintain those distinctions of religious play. If nothing else, we hope we can all leave this phone call with these three points, that even in the Catholic tradition, understandings of religious life are always shifting and evolving and growing, and that what is deemed religious life by the institutional church community is more often than not retroactively recognized after years of established on-the-ground practice anyway. And finally, that we're not concerned with official Vatican approval, because the Spirit is always calling communities into more inclusive understandings of religious life before the church can recognize it. We wholeheartedly believe that people will live out different forms of faith in their lives, but we question the importance and the valuation and the assumptions shallowly buried beneath these old barriers put in place by patriarchy. For us, it's our dedication to community and study, prayer and contemplation action that we believe everyone's invited to into a new form of religious life. And at Benincasa, it's not the evangelical councils that lead us to live with availability and generativity and simplicity and communal discernment, but rather it's our commitment to a common life for a common purpose and with an open heart to the common and mysterious spirit of God. So it's only one way of living these commitments in this present moment. 
We believe that the future is widening in ways beyond our comprehension, and so it's time to raise the anchors of the past generation and set sail upon the currents the whole Earth community is calling us to. Thank you for being here with us this evening, for listening, for joining us. Thank you, Deb Rose Milovec and Future Church and Russ and everyone who made the phone call possible and for everyone who took the time to join us and listen. Hope everybody has a great evening. Well, thanks so much. So this is Deb again. Um, wow. Uh, absolutely inspiring. Um, so I we're going to open it up for questions. So I'm going to... Uh, uh, change the settings here so that we can do that. Uh, when you want to ask a question, you know, press star six so that you'll unmute yourself. You know, ask your question. Uh, Karen and Sean and Jimmy will respond, and then uh, you can mute again so the next person can ask a question. So as I get this ready, I just want to ask. I want to start with a question that I think uh, for me is just an interesting one. What would you say is the most a uh, challenging part of being in community together, and you, whoever wants to answer it, if all three want to, uh, uh, you know, say something, I, I would be interested in hearing about that. Deb, so we should go ahead and answer yes. that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so this yeah. is Karen. Uh, I would say for me, it's hard to figure out sort of where the night ends and where the day begins it kind of <laughs> rumbles and tumbles into one day after another and I think uh, just I had lived as an attorney in a studio apartment in Queens for a long time and even though we've been at Ben and Costa in community for three years it's still a, a sort of um, getting your sea legs about uh, you know when you should leave and when you should come back and when you're on shift and when you're off and like I said before we sort of look to the Catholic worker uh, to help sort of guide us, and and Joanne and Amanda have been so great in answering our bazillion questions about things like that. And Jimmy or Sean? Yeah, Sean here. I would say, you know, I think um, in sometimes, not always, but sometimes in traditional religious life, there's some uh, formal establishment for formation and for how to uh, attend to your individual needs of like uh, socialization and and prayer as well as the communal needs. Um, but I would say part of the challenges uh, and part of the excitement of being in community is finding that formation ourselves and with our networks. Kind of building that uh, structure has been a challenge, um, but it's also been something that I think has provided us with a lot of grace because it's been a lot of listening to the spirit and sort of seeing what the needs are of the community and, and what the needs are of the individuals. Yeah, I appreciate the uh, the question. I guess uh, for me, and this is kind of a, a struggle, but also a blessing in a lot of ways, but as someone who can be conflict avoidant at times, um, you know, we, we live really in close relationship to one another. And, um, you know, if I was maybe living with my college buddies or something, I could push stuff under the rug. But in community, we really need to work things out. And uh, But that's really been a, a great lesson for me, too, in, in learning, you know, communicating with people in effective and loving ways and, you know, ultimately deepening relationships with people because we're able to work through things. Oh, thanks so much. 
Incredible. Okay, so let's open up the lines. So if you are ready to ask your question, press the star six and ask your question. Introduce yourself and then ask the question. I know there are plenty of them out there. Hello? Would someone like to start with a question? Uh-oh, Deb. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, this is Karen. I was just saying, uh-oh. No, not uh-oh. There's, uh, let's make sure I've got it on, let me just make sure I've got it on the right. I think I put it on Q&A. Hold on. Okay. Okay, so we're, I have it on the Q&A mode. I just want to make sure I have it on correctly. So uh, whoever wants to ask a question, go ahead. Um, hello, this is Kay, and okay. I'd like to ask a question. Um, earlier, if I'm remembering correctly, um, I don't remember which one of um, either Karen Schoen or James who said this about how over time it's basically the three of you living in community and over time you've sometimes been four people sometimes been um maybe seven or eight people and so it seems as though there's some people who've come and gone could you say more about what that looks like and how that happens yeah so the three of us that are on the call hi Kay. this is karen Okay. The three of us, the three of us that are on the call, have made a, a commitment to one another and to the community. And there are folks that are sort of—I don't know if orbiting is the right word—but people who come in for a year or two at a time. Uh, so people that are sort of around us for an extended period, and then there's sort of a, a, another orbit of people that are just coming for maybe six months. And either that has to do with their needs or their work schedule or um, there's some fluidity. So I think that is the best way to sort of describe the crescendo and the and the movement of the community. A core that's committed, a, a layer of folks around us who are making a one or two year commitment, and then a sort of other layer of folks that are weaving in and out depending on their need and their ability. Well, could all right, just so if you can clarify just a little more how I'm understanding some of that, too, is that, that in other words, um, it's kind of like folks have to sort of come and see if it fits, if, if the, the, um, if the Benincasa community and experience fits in their lives and they fit in that life. Is it something like that? Uh, hi, Kay, this is Jimmy. And, and yes, definitely, you know, uh, we really value discernment for folks who are looking to live here and, and you know, want to, you know, there's kind of a lot that goes on, I guess, behind the scenes. We have, um, you know, I guess it's just a particular lifestyle we live in, sharing things, you know, everything in our refrigerator is shared. So mm -hmm. if you have leftovers, it might not be there the next day. And 
little things like that to bigger things of like how how we welcome people, how we create a safe space. Um, you know, we have a lot of groups come through the house, so uh, there's a lot of cleaning that needs to go on for that. And um, mm-hmm. so there's a you know it's it's a full commitment to live here, and uh, we really value discernment in that. Um, and, and, and yeah, value that as an important part of our process for folks who want to live here. Okay, thank you. you um, can I, can I just follow up with that uh, with a question? So, is there some sort of a formal uh, discernment process that you have in place, or are you sort of working that as you go? Uh, how does that go? Like for you know, not for yourselves, but if other people are attracted to the community. Um, yeah, we always say we move slowly. We move very, very slowly. Um, so someone who calls and says, I'm moving to New York in two months, um, and I'd love to live with you, we say, I'm really sorry. That's, like, not how the process goes. So uh-huh. we invite we invite people into friendship first. The, you know, someone that comes over for dinner, someone that helps us do the work. And then in that friendship, we have time to have conversations, if that friendship develops and people feel drawn to the community, we ask them to come for two months. Come for two months, keep your apartment if you can, or you know, don't don't sort of throw yourself into it. Stay for two months and see how you feel, see how we feel together. And then from mm-hmm. that, we look at another six months, and then we do two years. So it's, if someone's looking to join the community and, and be like a fully involved in the community. That's the process that we have set up. Great. Another question. You can, uh, if you're yes, not... Yes, can I... Yes, go ahead. Um, this is Linda from Erie, and I'm I'm curious about your financial arrangement. What if, the, um, what if I am interested in coming and being a part of your community and I have no financial resources to contribute um, I'm not currently employed. Uh, I've never owned a home. How how do you work out the the finances? How do you support yourself? So that we've only been around for three years, and so we've had to evolve sort of how we pay the bills. This is I hope I'm answering the question properly. Just to give you a little bit of sort of how this came to be, but. Uh, when we first started, we were all working outside of the house, and we sort of did a contribute as you can and according to your need and ability, right? And then mm-hmm. as time went on, we found out that the work of Ben and Casa was too much, and so Sean, Jimmy, and I left our work and worked at Ben and Casa full time, and then had to shift our financial model. So a lot of you know. We think of now the three of us as working together on projects and doing work together to raise money for a common pot, whether it's offering retreats to student groups that could pay something or working at a farm um, and sort of thinking of it that way. If you were to come and you were to say, I have no money, right, we would say Uh Uh money is only one resource. And if you are truly called here, Right, we all have something to give, and so let you know. Let's talk about what is the the gift that you bring. Uh-huh. Right. Mhm. Mhm. Thank you. Okay. Great question. 
Are there, uh, and after you're finished, would you please press the star six again? Anyone else? That's, uh, and are there other questions? You can press the star six to unmute yourself and uh, ask your question, introduce yourself and ask your question. Okay, I actually have a question. This is yeah. Debbie um, from Toronto. I actually have a comment okay. as well. Um, I am a little concerned about some of the historical um, foundations because some of it's inaccurate. So I belong to North America's oldest non-cloistered community, and we have been, our constitutions were approved in 1698. So some of the stuff that you're, you're based on, I, I'm not sure it's entirely correct. Um, and I'm, I, I need to say that I, I found that there was a, you seem to be coming from a place about, um, in opposition to, and I'm pretty sure that can't be your vision for the future, right? It may be whatever your experience has been, but I would really, really came on the call because I was really interested in hearing what is your vision for this future? Um, and I'm hoping you can speak a little bit more to that right now. I, I, we obviously, did not do enough in the 40-minute presentation. Um, we had hoped to maybe speak to the vision in the call. So I'm not sure that we can answer that question now in a, in a short and succinct way, but I, I guess one way to sort of think about this is if Deb can put us both in contact, we'd love to talk with you more and maybe spend some more time talking about the vision for the community or the vision about the work. And it seems like a big question for the moment um, and all I could say about the historical accuracy is uh, I worked with a, a woman who teaches formation to women religious, and she and I went over the presentation several times. And so I'm, I'm maybe also inviting you to have a conversation with us outside of this call, and we can maybe talk to Regina and sort of see uh, where the inaccuracy is. And But maybe... I, I hate to punt the question, but it seems like maybe both of those things are, aren't right for the Q&A at this moment. But I, I look forward to talking with you more, and Sean and Jimmy and I totally invite that. Excellent. I look forward to that as well. Great. Other questions? I have a question. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes, we can. Go for it. Oh, good. It worked. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, my name is Beverly, and I'm in Cleveland, Ohio, and um, so I'm I'm really attracted to the religious life. Um, I always have been, sort of. I grew up as a Catholic, but I'm not really a Catholic now, and um, I study religion all the time, and I pray every day, and I meditate, and I'm just it's the main thing in my life. And um, but are there sort of non-denominational places like you or is your place like very strict about that does that make sense um so I'm, not, I'm not really a catholic i i read catholic stuff and i go to catholic church sometimes but i but i don't really consider myself a catholic but i'm very religious and i'm and i'm attracted to a religious lifestyle so yeah um i mean it's it's something that uh you know a lot of the folks that come into our community um, are coming from a lot of different religious backgrounds and traditions and experiences and relationships to the Catholic Church and other, their other faith traditions. Um, so that's always part of our 
community conversation and and our growth and evolution personally. Um, as far as groups in in Cleveland, I, I I know that Future Church is from Ohio and from the Cleveland area, um, but I, I'm not specifically uh, you know considering or recalling any uh, interdenominational or ecumenical or interfaith organizations that might be doing similar work to us. Um, you know, in thinking about like more widely defined conversations about religious identity, there are certainly movements. I mean, we're just, I'm not going to speak to it with any level of expertise, but we're just coming into knowing um, Matthew Fox and creation spirituality and those things as well, which seem to be grounded on trying to invite everybody into a sense of having a religious life as well. Um, so beyond that, though, I, I'm not sure that we can uh, make any recommendations. Okay. Well, so thank you but... for the question. It's, a, it's, a, it's one that I think a lot of folks probably on this call and off this call are, are, um, are working with in their own lives. So you say you have people from different backgrounds there? That's right. Uh, both religious and non-religious folks, folks from the Catholic tradition and not, um, you know, uh, that it's certainly not a requirement that you're a Catholic to, to be in relationship with our community. Well, and you ha so you have guests. So if I came to New York, I could come and stay with you for a week or something like that. Is that right? That's of course. Yeah, that'd be something you get in touch with us about. And um, it's something that we would be able to give you more details about and, and sort of have a conversation in more detail about what you're looking for and um, sort of your visit. Okay, that sounds great. Well, I'll, I'll write that down and I appreciate that. Um, appreciate your answer. Thank you. Great. Thank you. So, so we're running over. I would just suggest that we one more question at the most. Uh, so if there's one last burning question, please uh, send it forward. Okay. Well, I think we'll just we'll have to end it here tonight. Uh, just to say that uh, for anybody that wants more information, uh, you know, or if you want to get in contact uh, with Karen or Sean or uh, Jimmy, uh, go ahead and you can send me an email uh, if you uh, want to, Deb Rose at futurechurch.org, and I'll make sure that that connection gets made. So uh, we'd like to end here. Uh, uh, Russ would like to um, end with a few Future Church announcements and a prayer. So I'll turn this back over to Russ. And Thanks, Deb. And thank you to Sean, Jimmy, and Karen, um, and to all of you for joining us tonight. I'll make this short and sweet. There are two big things that we've got going on right now that I want to let you know about. Uh, and you'll get a follow-up email with details, so you don't need to write anything down. But the first is um, back in January of 2018 this year, uh, the, U the Association of U.S. Catholic Priests, the AUSCP, wrote a proposal and a letter to Cardinal um, Tobin and to the group that's responsible for the formation of um, priests in this country. And they um, asked that they seriously look at formation 
in uh, our seminaries and undertake um, a major reform of the way in which um, uh, priests are being formed today. And one of the, the major areas that they talk about is actually collaboration and learning from and with uh, lay women and men. And so uh, Future Church is in full support of their proposal and is asking uh, folks to write uh, Cardinal Tobin letters uh, if they support the proposal. Uh, we'll send you a link to all that information and, in fact, a, a letter that you can customize uh, and send along to Cardinal Tobin. And we also have uh, launched a new um, initiative, a new project. It's called Listening to Women with some of our other uh, partners in the church reform uh, movement. And those, um, <clears throat> those were, were, we've put together an entire packet for uh, communities and parishes to host listening sessions where women can voice their visions, their hopes, their dreams, their concerns uh, for, the, for the future uh, well-being of the church. So again, I'll have a link uh, for you in the follow-up email in the next couple of days with information about that and how you can get involved and how you can help make those sessions happen in your community. Uh, one last thing that I want to refer you to is uh, a great website called Catholic Women Preach where you can hear um, uh, Catholic women preach on the weekly readings and on some uh, uh, feast days and solemnities. In fact, Karen preached for Catholic women preach on Ash Wednesday, and we were very honored to have her, uh, and she, she did a phenomenal job. So uh, again, like I say, we'll have all of these links and more information for you in our follow-up email in the coming days, as well as the link to the recording of this. And with that, let us pray. Good and loving God, we give you thanks for Karen, Jimmy, and Sean. We give you thanks for the work that you are doing in and through and with them and the Benincasa community. We pray for the church, ourselves and those who exercise authority and decision-making among us. Open our eyes to see and understand the realities of our time the challenges we face, and the opportunities in our midst. Open our ears that we might hear the voices of those most in need of justice, liberation, and healing. Open our arms to embrace new ways of being and doing church together in the world. Give us open hearts that we might come to see ourselves as ministers to one another, as we work together with the Spirit to build up our earthly community. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Beautiful I prayer. Okay, finally, I just want to thank Karen and Sean and Jimmy again. Um, I know you didn't have time to talk about your vision. I'm telling everybody on this call that Anytime you even come close to this community, it is literally, you know, just a, uh, there's just so much energy and so much life. And uh, to watch them live the gospel life is just inspiring and life-changing. Um, 
So I I just uh, can't say enough about how much I appreciate what you're doing um, and how I'm inspired by you. Uh, Future Church, this whole year and as we look forward, uh, we're looking to the wisdom of younger Catholics. And uh, certainly there's wisdom and beauty and faith uh, in what you're doing at Ben and Casa. And uh, I am so for you and Future Church is so for you and uh, you're just what we need uh, for the church uh, going forward, however you define that uh, that word, So and religious life. So thank you again so much for all you do. I want to thank everybody that was on the call. It was just, it's, as always, it's wonderful. The conversations are rich. The questions are always wonderful, uh, often uh, thought-provoking. So thank you all so much. And I want to just uh, remind you all that Future Church can do these things because people like you support us. So please remember to, uh, from time to time, do what you can to support Future Church. Uh, these, uh, just like everything, uh, these things are, um, you know, take a little bit of money to, uh, you know, put forward. So please uh, don't forget about us uh, as you're thinking about who to support. Uh, so thank you all again. Thank you, Sean and Karen and Jimmy. Uh, you are three remarkable people, and I'm just so thrilled that you were here with us tonight. Thank you, Deb. Thank you, Deb. Thank All you. right. Hugs, Thanks, hugs, hugs, and uh, blessings. And, and and if there is anything to follow up on, Russ is going to be sending out an email, and uh, as he said, and we'll uh, if anybody contacts us, we will make sure that we get them in contact with you. So, okay. Thank you. Have a good night, everyone. Have a wonderful night, and thank you all. Okay, good night. Bye.